Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra, and this is Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today happens to be the 3rd of August, 2022. This is lecture, I believe it's 27 in membrane biochemistry. And we're going to just jump right into the fray. I'm going to talk about a paper published in the Journal of Neuroinflammation, which talks about inflammation that is perpetuated as a secondary injury. This is all membrane associated following a TBI. TBI, of course, is traumatic brain injury. And what occurs is this inflammation is exacerbated because of a neuronal involvement. So when you use an anti-inflammatory agent like corticosterone or progesterone, often there's no benefit. Now this was described in a couple of uh, huge NIH trials. One was called the CRASH trial, which was a prospective randomized placebo-controlled multi-center organized examination of corticosteroid and methylprednisolone in TBI patients. And it was reported that there was an increased mortality following TBI by using these corticosteroids, which reduced inflammation. That's correct. There was another trial called the PROTECT trial. Their progesterone had to be halted because it was a failure to demonstrate uh, any positive effects six months out after TBI. So even the promising anti-inflammatory agents themselves that have been looked at in preclinical studies and in, of course, murine models um, had no effect. And these are things like um, antagonists to pro-inflammatory cytokines. So they appear efficacious, but they quickly lose any efficacy in controlling inflammation. And what follows is another, another uh, inflammation response, which is more injurious to the neuronal system. And that means that the inflammation itself is necessary in order to clear the damage. So you need M1 macrophages and you need TH cells and that initiates the inflammatory response. So when you inhibit it with something like a corticosteroid, you're blocking M1 macrophages, which are pro-inflammatory, and you're blocking then subsequently the acquired immune cells, the T helper cells, like Th1, Th2 responses. The reason that that then leads to further inflammation and further neuronal damage after TBI is because following M1 Th cell recruitment and pro-inflammation, M2 and T regulatory cellular cort is now brought in. So you lose that secondary anti-inflammatory response. And the primary uh, inflammatory response is necessary, not just to allow for the anti-inflammatory cleanup of the M2 and the T regs, but because you need an inflammatory response, so this is totally without pathogen, right? You need the inflammatory response to be able to 
degenerate the tissue sufficiently so that you remove the damaged cells. And then the, the secondary phase, the M2 phase and the T-reg cells come along and clean up that debris, thus shutting down the inflammation. So if you block the initial inflammation, what will happen is you'll get a neuronal induced inflammation, okay? So rather than having it induced by the immune cells, the neurons and maybe in association with microglia are induced after TBI to become pro-inflammatory. So that's what this paper is looking at. So you have basically what's known as a direct neurogenic inflammatory response. And that inflammation is one of the most significant involving the TBI. So the evidence suggests that uh, what's involved are transient receptor potential cation channels, the TRIP channels. So you have TRIP V1 and you have TRIP A1. Now these are receptors that work at multiple modes of inflammation. And because they work at multiple modes, they then activate a variety of unique pro-inflammatory stimuli, all of which are associated with the damage caused by traumatic brain injury. Now, this includes the kind of, the kind of damage, mechanical shear stress. Now, that's going to lead directly to the release of neuropeptides and one of the key neuropeptides that are released from the neuron is substance P. So substance P augments many of the canonical features of classical inflammatory response. And it does so because it activates and involves the microglia as well as astrocytes. And you get then associated with that activation, degranulation of mast cells, and that will then promote further leukocyte migration to the inflammation site. So beyond that, the substance P, that polypeptide that's induced from TBI, will initiate the very early changes in blood-brain barrier permeability. Now, what the early change uh, involves is an increased transcellular transport of plasma proteins across the caveole. Okay, so this is why I'm bringing it up right now because we're still talking about KVLA. I told you this is a tremendously large um, corner on membrane biochemistry that I wanted to make sure I covered in my lectures. Now, this is all in line with reports that alterations in transcellular transport, which follow the TBI, have to occur prior to a decrease in the expression of tight junction proteins, which are, of course, not associated with the caveola. And the kind of proteins you see a decrease in expression of are Claudin-5 and the protein occludin. So let's back up and give you some detail here. Activation of sensory unmyelinated neurons that can occur because of noxious stimuli caused by a simultaneous release of neuropeptides like SP, but also neurokinin A or NKA or NKB, including also calcitonin gene-regulated peptide that's been discussed a lot in stress responses, that's the CGRP, 
those in combination, those polypeptides, SP, NKA, NKB, and CGRP, are all responsible for the induction of the neurogenic inflammatory response. So we can call this neuritis, and neuritis essentially is an elicited inflammatory response involving first vasodilation, and then, because of that, increased vascular permeability. For example, CGRP is responsible for promoting the vasodilation, while the substance P, that SP polypeptide, induces plasma extravasation, although it also produces a period of a short period of vasodilation, essentially probably reorganizing the cytoskeletal structure. Indeed, although the NKA, NKB, and the substance P will act synergistically, increasing capillary permeability, it's primarily a response mediated by SP alone. Now, what is SP? It's a very short peptide. It's an 11-amino acid peptide, and it's a member of the tachykinin family, which includes also that NKA and B. So they're all derived from a big polyprotein called pre-proto-tachykinin A, or PPTA. And that gene, of course, gets, gets alternatively spliced. That polypeptide uh, eventually then gives you NKA, NKB, and SP. Okay, all part of the same polyprotein. Now, SP, widely distributed in the CNS. You also find it in the PNS, the peripheral nervous system, and in enteric nervous systems in the gut. Now, in the CNS, SP is present in the dorsal root ganglion, which is, of course, going to be the primary sensory neurons associated with the spinal cord. SP is also found in other regions of the brain, including hippocampus, the cortex, the basal ganglia, the hypothalamus, the amygdala, and the caudate nucleus. So there's part of there that are associated with the um, effective centers of the brain, as you can hear. Now, they're more abundant in gray matter compared to the white matter, which also is an interesting aspect. So these are unmyelinated regions. So the biological effect of SP is mediated by that tachykinin receptor, also known as the NK receptor. And in fact, SP binds to the NK1 receptor, which also has some affinity uh, the SP for the for the NK2 and NK3 receptors. So there's crosstalk. But the SK1 NK1 receptors are specifically expressed in endothelial cells. That's why vasodilation and uh, is really important here. Endothelial cells, but also astrocytes, microglia, and in many other types of circulating leukocytes and lymphocytes. Okay, so this brings on the whole community of the immune response, as well as the neuronal system itself. Separately. Now, the transduction of the substance P signal that goes through that receptor, the NK receptor, is going to, of course, be a G protein coupled receptor system. And that means you're going to have cyclic A and P produced. That's going to be the secondary messenger. And that's going to lead to, yes, an upregulation of ion ch channel activity. And ultimately, it's going to lead to a change in transcription in the nucleus. 
Now, there are two types of this NK1 receptor. There's the full length and there's a truncated one. And the truncated one is acting some regulatory region of the polypeptide. And those are the last 100 or so amino acids towards the carboxy terminus. Now, the truncated form, I'm telling you that because the truncated form has a diminished binding for SP. And its activation produces, therefore, a diminished pro-inflammatory response as compared to the full length receptor. So I said this, that carboxy terminus has a lot of regulatory um, associated mechanisms. So that's the function of that structure. Now, higher levels expression of the shorter isoform, though, is where you what you find in all the periphery. But in the brain, the longer isoform is expressed. So you get a full SP response. Therefore, you can get a full neuronal pro-inflammatory response by the induction of the expression of SP. That means the pathology with the CNS with the full length version of the NK1 receptor because of SP involvement is, is what we need to really key in on. So alterations in the transcellular transport following TBI prior to decreases in the expression of those tight junction proteins I was telling you about, are indeed associated with the receptor for substance P. Again, the tachykinin and K1 receptor, because it is found in caveolae, not in the tight junctions. And in order to get caveolae expressed in this system, you have to activate it subsequent to the TBI. So the caveolae become constructed and then activated following a TBI with a loss of tight junction proteins, including Claudin-5 and occludin. So that means you get an increase in caveolin expression and cabin expression to build the caveolae. Right? Now, what that's going to allow for, which is very interesting in the caveolae, isn't remember caveolae are involved in movement, remember many different proteins and associated um, signal transduction that is unique to the caveolae because it's a more durable domain in the membrane. Its specificity is jacked up, and that specificity, as it turns out, when it's in the blood brain barrier, it's going to be a specificity for allowing for an enhancement of mobility of serum proteins. Okay. So the plasma proteins are going to get in because that KVLA has been construction constructed at the loss of tight junction proteins, and that will augment the inflammatory response. And the way it augments it, that the production of the KVLA and the SP, is you're going to activate the microglia as well as the astrocytes. So now, that's curious because a paper published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine um, not quite a year ago, talks about blood-brain barrier disruption following stroke, particularly ischemic stroke. And now we know that when you get a BBB disruption, that will contribute to hemorrhagic transformation, brain edema, swelling that is, and an increased neuronal dysfunction. And that secondary injury can lead to more high, more higher mortality after the stroke. So brain endothelial cells 
normally form a para and transcellular barrier to most bloodborne solutes. Again, through those tight junctions we just meant, we just introduced to you. And there are also some in in those tight junctions you do have rare vesicular transport, which of course is going to be transcytosis. Now the idea is that the destruction of those tight junctions to the blood-brain barrier subsequent to the ischemic stroke is what leads to this tremendous damage uh, in the stroke patients. And it indeed accounts for all that blood-brain barrier leakage in ischemic stroke. So the increased endothelial transcytosis that is absolutely KVOLI-mediated precedes and is independent of the tight junction disintegration. Now, see, now that's different from the TBI I just mentioned to you. The TBI required a loss of expression of tight junction proteins. Here, the KVOLI are constructed after an ischemic stroke because presumably there are different mediators corrupting that blood-brain barrier that are involving an increase in KVLR construction that are in the ischemic stroke that aren't in the TBI, okay? So post-stroke in the TBI system, post-stroke blood-brain barrier corruption is not the same as post-TBI blood-brain barrier corruption. So that means we have to develop an alternative treatment strategy because we have an alternative or an absolutely unique pathophysiological response that initiates that blood-brain barrier disintegration. This wasn't known until uh, papers like this one published in late 2021 came out. So I want to bring that to your attention. So let's go back to talk about substance P. Remember that the initial release of substance P comes from sensory neurons following TBI. And it's mediated by the mechanical, because it's a mechanical activation. Because it's a, it's a Remember, it is a TBI, right? Mechanical activation of those TRIP receptors. So you have TRIP, remember that's transient receptor potentials. And the ones involved are TRYP-V1 and TRYP-A1. Now, all TRYP receptors, and these two are not any different, have a six transmembrane domain. And that assembles as tetramers, which essentially now will form, once it's completely constructed within the membrane, a cation permeable pore. So the activation of the TRYP receptors will allow for an influx of cations, particularly sodium and calcium, which is going to cause a change in the polarization of the membrane, right? And calcium, of course, can induce further downstream sequelae, right? Including changes in gene expression. And one of those things is an alteration of neuropeptide production. So TRYP-V1 is co-expressed in most, if not all, of the TRYP-A expressing dorsal root ganglion neurons. You also get a co-expression of both those receptors with the neuropeptides, including, that's right, substance P. So they're all working in concert here. So indeed, the suppression of the TRYP-V1 receptor with antagonists that are available, like the 
capsizepine, that's a pharmaceutical, will significantly reduce the substance P induction of the pro-inflammatory response, which is also the response that you measure in a model system of murine for sepsis in the brain. Okay. Also, the same model is used for ethanol-induced gastric injury. And one more, again, these are all murine models, formalin-induced asthma. And that latter one shows a similar reduction in substance P by administering a TRIP-A1 antagonist, another pharmaceutical I don't need to go into details with. So activation of both the TRIP-V1 and TRIP-A1 is linked to an increase in that vascular permeability. And that, of course, is the important downstream effect for substance P release. So TRIP-V1 immunoreactivity in astrocytes and parasites is going to be associated with the change in the vasculature, as well as in the neuronal co-induced inflammatory response, okay? which is all going to be linked to blood-brain barrier integrity, which, of course, you want to maintain following something like an ischema reperfusion injury. Okay? I got to check my time here. I know I'm rolling along here pretty quickly. Now, we got plenty of time. All right. Now, <clears throat> SP induces and indeed augments classical inflammation. Of course, that means leukocyte activation and migration, endothelial cell adhesion molecule expression, right? And the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines. Besides that, also the production of pro-inflammatory mediators like histamine and nitric oxide and the proteins called kinins. So substance P is essentially a mast cell activator and mast cells are found within the brain on the adluminal side of the blood-brain barrier. But it's all, but it's also mast cells are also found in the leptomeninges. And with the degranulation of the mast cells, you potentiate exocytotoxicity, and all of this is going to prolong vasoactive, neuroactive, and immunoreactive cellular and molecular responses to the TBI. So SP also directly activates microglia and astrocytes. It's what we've been saying, post-injury. And it induces the expression of those receptors we just introduced, the NK receptors, on the astrocytes. And their activation contributes to the transformation to a reactive pro-inflammatory astrocyte. And so you get the production of cytokines, prostaglandins, and thromboxane derivatives, all of which are involved in, are, are generated from polyunsaturated fatty acids, usually at the omega-6 uh, positional structure. So you make prostaglandins and thromboxanes from activating cyclooxygenase. So that's also involved. So substance P will promote microglial activation. And because you just turned on eicosanoid production, those are the prostaglandins and the thromboxanes. Remember, that's going to then 
mitigate, mediate, excuse me, the NF-kappa B transcriptional pathway. And that's going to lead, lead to the transcriptional and then translational and post-translational modification, secretion of pro-inflammatory cytokines. And ultimately, the microglia will produce interleukin-1 in response to substance P. Now, beyond that, following a TBI, the NK1 antagonists have been shown to significantly reduce the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines, particularly the, one of the more potent ones, IL-6. And when that occurs, you also get a decrease in microglial activation and microglial proliferation. Okay, So that's basically the story. Now, there's more involvement with serum proteins. Now, let me see if I've got time to get through this here. This is a really, yes, I think I do. So substance P-related blood-brain barrier corruption perpetuates the inflammatory response. That's what I just went through with you. Remember the blood-brain barrier is the selective endothelial layer that is joined by very tight junctions, including those proteins called junctional adhesion molecules, and the claudins and the occludins, but also the zonula occludin or ZO proteins. And all of those are supported at the end of the astrocyte and they act to support an enhanced type junction organization at the blood-brain barrier membrane. Now, tight junctions are present at the apical end of the interendothelial junction. And they relay, rely on the integrity of the cadherin junctions, which of course are all located at the basolateral region. So when you look at the cerebral endothelial cells, you see that there's a circumferential arrangement of the tight junctions, which generate the barrier formation of the BBB. And that is essentially what restricts the movement of any hydrophilic molecules, including ions like sodium, to be able to pass beyond the BBB into the cells, into the neuronal system. So given restrictions on paracellular transport, cerebral endothelial cells have tightly controlled mechanisms that enable bidirectional transcellular passage of essential, for example, nutritional molecules like glucose and ketone bodies or fatty acids associated with lipoproteins in the form of triacylglycerol initially, right? And so these, the same system is going to control the efflux of potentially neurotoxic substances, which would include cellular waste products. Smaller molecules will be ferried across that barrier via carrier-mediated or sometimes ion-gated channels. But the macromolecules have to employ some kind of transcytosis. And these can either be receptor-mediated transport or adsorptive-mediated transport, so the RMT, AMT pathways. And that's where positively charged macromolecules will non-specifically transport across that cerebral endothelium. The cerebral endothelium itself has very few pinocytotic 
junctional vesicles compared to the peripheral endothelia. But they still transport macromolecules via one of three different vesicular transport mediated responses. So you have the clathrin coated pits, that's the most common, and also through most of the RMT. But you also get smaller and less numerous caviole. And those are capable of both receptor-mediated transport and adsorptive-mediated transport. But also they will move large macropenocytotic vesicles with a nonspecific cargo, some of which can be toxic. Okay. So I'm going to stop there because the next important step of the description in this review article I'm reviewing with you has to do with serum albumin. Now, this is going to be a really interesting story because serum albumin, as it turns out, is going to be a neurotoxic agent uh, subsequent to these TBIs. And that's really important because serum albumin is very common, uh, obviously, serum protein. But what have I told you for years and years and years, if you've listened to my lectures? Serum albumin binds fatty acid. It can transport cargo fatty acid. Once you get serum albumin into a protected space, don't just think about the serum albumin polypeptide. Think about what its cargo is. Its cargo are going to be free fatty acids, which have, yes, indeed, you're going to get lipotoxicity. That's the core of this process. So we'll finish this discussion in the next lecture. This is Dr. Dan Guerra on a Wednesday, the 3rd of August, 2022. And I'm saying bye for now.